You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Now, as we look at uh, my other Facebook post that you guys helped with was about angels. And so as we look at the the second half of chapter one of Hebrews, we we see a lot of uh, comparisons um, of Jesus to the angels. And it, it seems a little bit out of place for us because um, I, I, at least initially, I thought we don't put as, as big of an emphasis on angelic activity as they did in the first century. Uh, but then my Facebook post really showed me that that's, that's actually not the case. We do have a lot of angelic activity uh, portrayed in our culture and pop culture and in movies. And like, I forgot about that one with John Travolta. Someone brought that out of the vault, you know. And um, Angels in the Outfield's always been a classic, you know, um, you know saving the angels and, um, and helping them be good at baseball. That's definitely the angels' mission. Um, I think the Pistons could use a sequel to that right now, like Angels in the Backcourt for Detroit. That would be helpful. As a Pistons fan, I'd love to see that. But, um, you know, I think Touched by an Angel, I have fond memories of like, um, you know, like me and all my friends, all our parents would be weeping, you know, at the end of Touched by an Angel, like when the death angel showed up. It's like, no, not him, you know, and everyone would be all sad and all that. And, um, and, and so, I, you know, quick, we kind of look over it, but a quick survey we'll see, see there's, there's lots of angelic portrayals all around us. And, um, and, and probably most famous by, or at least my favorite, by the, uh, the band Alabama and that classic country song, Angels Among Us. And so uh, I wanted to take some time as we look at this text and, and look through the quotations of the Old Testament scriptures um, to, to talk a little bit today about what angels are. Because if we don't understand who angels are or, or, or maybe, maybe what angels are, uh, then we're not really going to fully understand the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make when he opens his book by saying that Jesus is greater than the angels. Why would this book open with this, this case that needs to be made that Jesus is greater than angels? Okay, so let's, I just got to show you two things. Number one, who are the angels? And number two, who is the Son? Who's the Son of God? Now, keep the second point in mind as we go through the first point. The, the whole point of the introduction to the book is introducing us to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But the first case that the author is going to make is that um, tell us who the angels are and why Jesus is greater than them. Now, remember the theme of Hebrews. As we go throughout this book, now you need to remember what the theme is, and it is greater or superior or better. The theme of the book is that Jesus is uh, greater than any revelation religion had ever known or ever will know. And and the first greater segment or superior segment that that we see is this in chapter 1 where the author makes the case that Jesus is greater than the angels. Uh, Let's look at Hebrews 1.3, which I covered last week, but just to give us some more context. Verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now again, the rest of the chapter is an examination of seven Old Testament scripture quotations. Um, about angels and about the Son of God. And, and I want to first answer the question, why is there this need at the beginning of this letter to, to prove that Jesus is greater than the angels? Well, first of all, angels were highly sought after in the first century and, and even worshipped in the first century. And so we tend to, um, 
we, we tend to fictionalize angelic activity, right? Like, like all the examples, you know, Touched by an Angel is like a little bit more serious. I don't really remember the John Travolta movie. I don't care to really either. But, but uh, you know, you think of like angels in the outfield, and there, there are certainly some serious and good principles we learn from that film, but it's meant to be humorous, and it's, it's clearly meant to be fiction. Um, and, and so, but in the first century, uh, that, that's not how angels were portrayed. Uh, they were even worshipped, that people would, would say that they would worship God and angels and his created beings. And so in, in our postmodern world, what's happened is we've become kind of disenchanted with much of the unseen universe. And, and so from the beginning, I need you to understand that God has created a vast, unseen part of our world with many creatures. Um, our, our daughter church in Madison uh, the, the pastor there is Josh Robinson. He just released a book called Reenchanting the Unseen, and he shares in, in his book uh, this about angels. An understanding of angels can change the way you view natural phenomena and world events because you realize that even though you cannot see it, there is an unseen hand behind all of it. And so the reality is, is that Scripture is filled with indications that angels are God's agents in controlling the cosmos and controlling the happenings of the universe. Uh, Psalm 104 is, is a, a song in the Old Testament that lists what modern scientists would call natural events, like Tony Cavalier would love Psalm 104. If you want to mark that and read it this week, there's a lot of weather events happening in that Old Testament song. But according to the Bible, these natural weather events are in reality supernatural events because they're following the bidding of a sovereign God. And in Hebrews 1.7, the author of Hebrews quotes from that song, 104, it says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds. Some, of your, some Bible translations would say spirits. It means to blow. Um, he makes his angels winds and his ministers or his servants a flame of fire. And so it, it, the, the author of Hebrews is making the case that even the seemingly natural things that we can lay eyes on, we can see the effects of wind, we can visibly see a fire, that, that those things are, are controlled by a sovereign God and maybe even more specifically carried out by angels who carry out his bidding. And so who are the angels? Or maybe a more fitting question, what are the angels? In academia, it's called angelology. You know, it's kind of a, a self-explanatory type of topic that's studied. Um, but in angelology, it's the study of these created beings. Um, in, in his Systematic Theology, Christian Theology, uh, Millard Erickson defines angels as this, and I think this is helpful for us to get a framework of, of what angels are. Angels are spiritual beings which God created higher than humans, some of whom have remained obedient to God and carry out his will, and others of whom disobeyed, lost their holy condition, and now oppose and hinder his work. And so not only are angels these ministers and servants of God, but fallen angels are the enemies of God and the opposition of God's work. And the Bible mentions angels a lot, but angels in Scripture are always kind of shrouded in mystery. Now, um, if, if you're like me, you don't like mysterious things. You want the answers to everything. You want everything explained fully and finally. Uh, and unfortunately, God doesn't see fit to tell you all the answers all the time. There's a lot of mystery in the Bible. Amen? How many of y'all read your Bible and you don't understand it? Amen. You can say amen to that. Okay? There's a lot of mystery in the Bible. And one of the mysterious things of Scripture are the angelic beings, both holy and unholy, that, that we don't get a full picture 
of, of who and what angels are. God doesn't see fit to give us that full picture. And in his sovereign purpose, that's okay. But the Bible does mention angels a whole lot. But here's what's telling about where we should kind of categorize angels. Every single time, of hundreds of times they're mentioned in the Bible, every single time they are not the topic of the story or the narrative. They're not the subject of what's going on. The story is never about the angels that are mentioned. Rather, the, the angels are characters in the, in the narrative that are bringing attention to what God wants our attention to be on. And so it's important that as we think about this, that we understand that, that the story is not about angels. And it's a good application for you as well because your story is not about you. Everything ultimately is about the Son. That's the case that the author of Hebrews is going to make. That everything ultimately is about Jesus. And so we exist to, to worship Jesus and point people to Jesus. And the angels who are created beings exist for the same purpose that they worship Jesus and they, they point people to him. And so in Hebrews 1.5, the author continues and he says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. These quotes are from Psalm chapter 2 and 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the point that's made here is that no angel has the special and benevolent love of God the Father like Jesus the Son does. You see, angels serve the purpose of the Son. This is why every time that they're mentioned, the story that they're mentioned in is not about them. You remember last week I taught you, remember young people, Jesus had that what? Main character energy. Some of y'all old people still don't know what we're talking about. That's okay. All right? Get on TikTok, you figure it out, or don't. It's up to you. But Angels are the opposite. I don't know if, if the youth Gen Z vernacular has a term for non-main character energy, but that would be the angels category. They're the opposite of main character energy. And even if you think about it in, in terms of a, of a typical narrative or a story, you have like protagonistic characters, main characters. They're not even like the co-stars of the show or the sidekicks. They're not like the Robin to the Batman. They're the behind-the-scenes people that are rarely seen. They're, they're like God's deacons, God's servants that, that serve his purpose, but, but, but are rarely in the spotlight. Matter of fact, not only do angels serve the Son, but they worship him. Verse 6, Hebrews 1, 6 says, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. This quote comes from Deuteronomy 32. And again, we see this fulfillment and fruition of this when Jesus is born. You see all kinds of angelic activity when Jesus puts on flesh and comes to earth to live for us and to dwell with men. That's why at all your Christmas uh, plays when you're a little kid, someone's got to be an angel, right? Um, there's always angels in the Christmas play because there was a lot of angelic activity to pronounce the coming of Jesus and to worship Jesus. And so let me go through what do we know about angels. Um, first of all, we know there are good angels that are active in our world, okay? Alabama teaches us this, but also the Bible teaches us this, okay? Like the old man that leads, apparently the lead singer of Alabama got lost in the woods one time, and an old mysterious man that was invisible led him home and saved his life from the cold weather. Um, there, there are things that, that happen, and, and so we, we need not be ultimately pessimistic about people who have encounters like that, although I'm not saying that Alabama's song is based on a true story. 
I don't know, you'd have to ask them. But the Bible does mention that we can encounter angels. Hebrews 13.2 specifically says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now what's interesting about this is that this shows that it is very possible for us to, in a, in a very physical and real way, experience, talk to, interact with angels. Now notice that this verse doesn't say all of us have entertained angels and not known it. It doesn't say that most of us have entertained angels and not been aware of it. It says that some of us have. And that some we don't know. It might be some of us in this room. It might be none of us in this room. It might be some throughout history. We don't know how much, but we know that it does happen. Now, these angels are seen in Scripture as messengers and warriors. Those are the two primary roles. Angels are seen as messengers, and they're seen as warriors. They're either messengers telling God's story. For example, the announcement of Jesus' birth to shepherds, to Mary. We see them doing things like this, announcing God's work, telling God's story. Or they're warriors protecting God's people. Um, if you remember the Old Testament story about Elisha and his servant was terrified because the armies were around them and it looked like they were surely going to be killed. And Elisha prayed and he said, oh Lord, would you open his eyes so that he may see what I see? And the Lord opened his servant's eyes and he looked on the mountains and the mountains were filled with warriors, angelic warriors to keep them safe. And the Bible also tells us there are various kinds of angels. Uh, there's one word that's used a lot in Exodus and Numbers called cherubim. Uh, this is a winged creature. And so cherubim, these were the, the creatures that were on top of the Ark of the Covenant. If you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you have a, a visual representation of what the Ark of the Covenant looked like. And, and those winged creatures on top of it, those are cherubim. This is, by the way, typically what we think of when we think of angels. Um, not the most common form of angel in Scripture. But what we typically think of are like the giant wings. That's cherubim. Another thing that's mentioned, another type of angel is seraphim. In Hebrew, it literally means fiery serpent. Doesn't that sound terrifying? Um, it doesn't sound like precious moments at all. It sounds like anything but precious to me. Fiery serpent. This is what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. He said he saw seraphim, angels with six wings that were serpent-like and fiery, and, and flew with two of their wings and covered themselves with four of their wings. And Isaiah fell down like he were dead because he was so scared, right? I would be too. There's also, in Ezekiel, in the book of Revelation, living creatures that are described, four living creatures specifically around the throne, as well as other parts that, are, that describe even more of these creatures that are filled with eyes, like you think two eyes is enough. They're covered with eyes. They look like, um, as, as men try to describe them, they look like lions or oxen or eagles or men. When we think of this and when we see this, it, it's actually kind of scary. <laughs> Sounds terrifying. And this is why when people encountered angels, they were normally terribly afraid. But there's also angels that look just like humans. And these are the angels that are most commonly encountered by people in Scripture. Think of Gabriel and Michael that, that visit people in Scripture. These are the angels that, that we would most typically, if we were going to encounter an angel and be unaware of it, these are the angels that we would encounter. Um, now, these angels are misrepresented by most artists. In Scripture, these angels are never uh, described as having wings. Uh, almost never do we see these messengers of God having wings at all. 
Um, and, and I don't know if you remember like your Christmas plays, but I feel like all the girls were always angels, maybe because they had like sparkly outfits and stuff. But, but angels are always masculine. They're described as masculine. Now, I don't think they're either male or female. Uh, they don't marry. Jesus tells us this about the angels, but they're always described with masculine names. Um, so this tells us that they don't look like chubby little babies playing harps, okay? Uh, that's not what they look like. Um, most of these angels, most of the host of angels, most likely look similar to adult male humans. But along with this host of holy creatures, some very normal looking and some very terrifying, uh, also there is a host of dark and rebellious ones as well. There's reason to believe that there are not just rebellious um, fallen angels that we would call demons, but also rebellious cherubim and seraphim, fiery serpents that, not, that don't serve God in heaven, but rather rebel against him. I don't think it's an accident that Satan is called a serpent in Genesis 3. He is a fallen angel who is described as a serpent. It sounds very much like the seraph. Um, there is demonic influence in the world, which is caused by these fallen angels that are active. And in God's sovereign plan, he could end them once and for all at the snap of a finger, but he chooses in his sovereignty to allow them to exist for now. And I think that many ancient and modern false gods might not be as imaginary as what we think. I think, um, you know, when I read in Scripture about false gods that these different societies around Israel worshipped, or when I think of people worshipping false gods even today, I, I, I used to typically think, well, they just made something up and worshipped it. But I, I, I tend to think that once I see that, that God has created a host of angelic beings, and there is a host of these fallen uh, angels known as demons, that I think many of these false gods might not be so made up. The Bible makes it clear that there's a real existence of rebellious spiritual beings leading humans astray. And I think this gives rise to much of the cults that we see in our world today, much of the false religions that we see in our world today. I think this gives rise to a paranormal phenomenon like UFOs and ghosts and all of those things. I think that the spiritual world has something to do with that. But again, it's shrouded in mystery. And as Christians, I think we should all be okay with saying we don't really know. God has chosen not to tell us all the answers to this. Now, I say all this to make this point. In the context of Hebrews 1, Jews in the, in the first century were absolutely gripped and fascinated with angelology. The books of the Apocrypha, those, you know, those books of the Bible that the Catholics add in, you know, those, like, the, the, they, they happened between Malachi and Matthew, and, and all those books that, that the Catholics add into their Bible, we can glean knowledge from them about culturally what was happening in Second Temple Judaism at that time, but they're not the Bible, but it's interesting that those books have more angelic activity than the Bible does. Uh, the, the concept, by the way, of a guardian angel, that, that each one of us has a, an angel kind of assigned to us at birth or something like that, that, that we have an angel that stays with us and like looks out for us. Like some of y'all got, some of y'all need to give your angel a vacation. You're just working him too hard, okay? But that concept is not in the Bible, okay? So I, I don't think we have specific guardian angels because it's not in the Bible, but that concept came into existence during this intertestamental period when the Apocrypha was written. That concept came to be when people were beginning to worship their guardian angels rather than worshiping God. And so in comes the letter to the Hebrews, correcting some of their erroneous theology. And so Hebrews doesn't say disregard angels. 
doesn't tell us that angels aren't real. Clearly, that's not the truth. But Hebrews makes it clear that, that angels serve in their proper role, and we should not be fixated upon them. Rather, our eyes should be fixed on Christ. Hebrews 1.14 tells us about the angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? You know who that is? That's you. That all of this heavenly host of weird creatures that we don't understand are, are sent out to serve us. Angels are servants for our sake. And when you get to peer into the vastness of God's creation, the cosmos, the universe, the stars, the angels, you need to know two things. First, it is all for God's glory. It would be tempting for us to look at these spiritual beings and say, well, well I don't understand why God would create all this. Just as if it would be tempting for us to look into a telescope and say, well, I don't know why God created all of this expanse, but it's for his glory. It's so that the further we look and the deeper we dive, the more we see God's majesty and his handiwork. And secondly, we need to know that it is also for our good, that he has created it for our good, for our benefit. And so number two, we look at who is the son. Now, I know that was a lot about angels, but the point of the passage is not just angels. It's about the one who is greater than the angels. And so remember, the purpose of this book is to introduce us to the son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, last week, remember I told you the book is Christocentric, meaning that it, it teaches us, not only is it Christocentric in the time it was written, but it teaches us how to read the Old Testament, where Jesus is not named explicitly. It teaches us to still read the Old Testament with Christ at the center of it. A beautiful example of how to read the Old Testament is found in verses 8 and 9. As the author of Hebrews continues, he has a contrast word, but, in verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, if, you wanna, if you're a note taker, you want to write this down. This is a quote of Psalm 45. And if you want homework, you don't have to do this. We're not going to have a test next week. But if you want homework, I would suggest go and read Psalm 45 sometime this week. And, and what's interesting about Psalm 45 is that it is a love song. If you go and you read the whole song, it is, it is as much of a love song as, as like Celine Dion, Greatest Hits, okay? It is written about a Hebrew king finding a wife. It reads very similar to the Song of Solomon. We get a description of how handsome the, the groom is. We get a description of how beautiful the bride are. And I think Psalm 45 applies first to practical marriage. Man finds a bride. Bride finds a groom. The bride is instructed to throw off all others, her family even, and cling to her bridegroom alone. This is good marriage advice. In, in uh, Psalm 45.10, it says, Hear, O daughter, and consider. Incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. And the king will desire your beauty, since he is your Lord. Bow to him. It's a very romantic song. And if you, if you read it, you might be tempted to look at it and say, how in the world is this about Jesus? How in the world can the author of Hebrews make this psalm about Jesus? You would read it and say, I don't see Jesus anywhere in this. 
until you get to New Testament theology and the shroud and the mystery is lifted up enough for us to see as, as the Holy Spirit calls Jesus what? The bridegroom. And calls his church what? The bride. And we begin to see that, that we are called to discard all other gods and cling to our good groom, Jesus Christ. Now, this passage of Hebrews and others like it in the letter to the Hebrews teaches us how to interpret the Old Testament. Now, one error that we might have when we go to the Old Testament might be primary and secondary interpretations. And what I mean by that is, is we would look at Psalm 45 and say, this psalm is primarily about marriage and secondarily about Jesus. Okay? Um, I think that would be erroneous because it puts Jesus in second place. The, the, the error on the other end would be to say that everything is only about Jesus and, and there's nothing ever practical in the Old Testament. I think that's an error on the other end of the spectrum. But rather than think of it, of it in primary and secondary interpretations, I would submit to you that we look at the Old Testament scriptures and look at the, them as a surface interpretation and a deep interpretation that puts Jesus at the core of all scripture. There are surface-level interpretations and practical applications for all of the Old Testament. For example, in the law, when the law tells us that something is good, that we should do it, or bad, that we should abstain from it. The surface-level interpretation and application makes that very applicable to our lives. But as we dive deep into what the meaning of it is, Hebrews teaches us that a Christocentric view puts Jesus at the center of God's law and everything. Hebrews continues by taking us to Psalm 102. Another psalm that, this one isn't romantic, it's a worship song, and in verse 10, this is quoted in Hebrews. In Hebrews 1.10, it says, and, indicating that there's another psalm quoted, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Again, what we see here is a Christocentric interpretation of an Old Testament passage. You see, in some psalms that we call messianic psalms, the Son is very explicitly named. There, there are multiple psalms that talk about the Son, the begotten, the firstborn, that clearly talk about Jesus. Jesus on the cross fulfills the psalms. He quotes the psalms, indicating that he is the fulfillment of all the prophecy in the psalms. And so if I'm writing a letter in the first century to Hebrews, and I'm wanting to prove to them that Jesus is the Messiah, and prove to them that he was prophesied even in the Old Testament, and I'm going to use the Old Testament to do it, what I'm probably going to do is go to those messianic psalms. And you know what the author of Hebrews does? The exact opposite. <laughs> well, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so. And what this shows us is that even in Psalm 102, where Jesus is not mentioned, even, even sonship language is not mentioned. Rather, instead, the name of God is used. Yahweh is what is used throughout Psalm 102. And so Hebrews takes an interesting strategy. Instead of using all the Messianic Psalms, he kind of lets those interpret themselves. But he says, let me take you deeper. And where you wouldn't think you would see Jesus, there he is. Now here's how I want you to apply this to your life. Because we would look at our lives and we would maybe be tempted to do the same thing. That we would have 
primary places for Jesus and secondary places for Jesus. You know what I mean by that? Church is a primary place for Jesus, right? It is good to carry a Bible at church. It's good to talk about Jesus stuff at church. It's good to, you know, say say churchy type language at church. Like in, like like on Monday if somebody asks you how you are, you're like fine. But if someday somebody asks you how you are, you're like blessed, you know? Hashtag blessed, you know? You should change your language a little bit, right? And so what happens if we're not careful is, is church and Sunday space becomes a primary place for Jesus, but then our job or our school or our hobbies become secondary places for Jesus, and he gets second place. Let me just challenge you to, make, to take a Christocentric approach to your life like the author of Hebrews teaches us to do. Rather than primary and secondary, look at your life as surface level and depth. That at a surface level, like, like take marriage for example. Like you cannot just talk about Jesus in your marriage. You know that? <laughs> like if you only talk about Jesus, like you're not going to get your household chores done. All right? Like your wife's like, you need to take the garbage out. And you're like, let's read the Bible. Like that's not going to go well for you, bro. I'm just telling you. Okay? But, but if at a, at a surface level you understand we've got to communicate well, we've got to be intimate with one another, we've got to be on the same page with our parenting and with our bill paying and our, our, our child rearing and all those things, and, and we're on the same page with that, but at a deep level, Jesus is at the center of why we do those things. There's a reason that I take the trash out that somehow Jesus is involved in. Can you believe that? Because Jesus has called me to be a good dad, to be a good husband, to be responsible. You see what I mean by that? So it's not trash first, Jesus second. It's trash needs taken out. But Jesus is at the core of everything. That my life becomes Christocentric. That everything is rooted in what Jesus has done for me and created me to be. And so when the author of Hebrews goes back into the Old Testament, he gives us a perfect example of how to exegete our lives, to live our lives in honor to God. And again, the author of Hebrews is clearly making a case that Jesus is God. And so why is Jesus greater than the angels? One verses 10 through 12, he makes it clear. He quotes a psalm that doesn't mention sonship, but instead mentions the name of God, Yahweh. He's greater than the angels because he is God. Hebrews 1.13, the last verse I'll share with you. It says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. All the enemies of God have their rightful ending under his feet. And all the friends of God have their rightful place in his presence forever. That's the good news of the gospel. That that even in angelic creation, that the deities and the principalities that have rebelled against God will be punished forever in hell, and that brings glory to God. And those that have uh, been holy and remained allegiant to him will be around his throne forever. And what has been extended to us as humans is the grace of an opportunity to repent to turn from our sin, to turn from our rightful place of being under God's feet to rather being a son or a daughter in his kingdom. And Jesus accomplished all of this through the cross, through a thing that no angel 
or no demon or no human could have ever conjured up or thought of. That he would defeat death by dying. That he would raise from the dead to save people who deserve hell and give them heaven. What a beautiful truth we get to live in. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.